Welcome to the History Tricks, where any resemblance to a boring old history lesson is purely coincidental. Hello. While the chicks are away, the roosters will play. Beckett and Susan are in Paris right now, so it's Rooster Week here at the History Chicks, and this is Chris Graham, the History Chap. Thanks to our friends at the Bowery Boys and the Guild of Gentlemen, we now bring you a Veuve Clicquot adjacent history of absinthe with a recipe. The Chicks will be back with a new episode upon their return from the City of Lights. And now, on with the show. It was said to have inspired some of the greatest art of Belle Epoque France in late Victorian England. Degas and Manet painted denizens of the Paris cafes reveling in its pleasures. Gauguin himself enjoyed its effects, and along with Van Gogh, it was said to have helped produce moments of their greatest creative visions. French poets Baudelaire and Rimbaud were avid drinkers, and it even seems that the great Marcel Proust was known to partake. French short story writer Guy de Maupassant described its curious sensations in his work, and Oscar Wilde even compared its influence to experiencing a sunset. Henri Toulouse-Lautrec was so passionate about it that it said he wandered around the streets of Paris with a hollow cane filled with this mysterious green liquid, so a quick infusion was always at his fingertips. Even mentioning its name conjures an image of artists, writers, and musicians overtaken seemingly by its mysterious and even dangerous powers. It's impossible to even say its name without visions of joy and decadence and intrigue. It is absinthe. Today's show, with my special guest and absinthe expert, Don Spiro, it will unlock the myths and mythology of this drink known since the Belle Epoque as the Green Fairy. Whether you imbibe or not, join us for a voyage back to the late 19th century cafes of the Impressionists and the bars of London's dandies to see just what the drama was all about. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where every two weeks I take you well beyond the glitter and the gold to explore the worlds of America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. Paris, at the end of the 19th century, was the place to be. A tremendous optimism was everywhere following the destruction of the Franco-Prussian War. The city spilled onto the streets, showing itself off in new fashions and new art. Wonders, including towering new architecture, grand boulevards, and an ever-changing theatrical street scene, were literally around every corner. A new metro system was built to bring Parisians wherever it seems they wanted to go, and the introduction of electricity famously transformed the city into truly the city of light. And beautifully landscaped avenues and grand parks filled with the elegant and the glamorous were all over the city. And as lights twinkled high above the Parisians' heads, there was a sense of lost inhibitions, sensual pleasures anywhere you looked, and the feeling that anything was possible. And from the most stylish of restaurants to the lowest working-class bars, the city was awash in the drink that caught this new light in special crystal glasses, absinthe. 
Across the Channel in London, a similar loosening of the Victorian morals pushed the artistic world forward according to the dandies and aesthetes crowding the galleries and studios. No longer did art need to instruct. It could be beautiful just for what it was. Pleasure and wit and beauty, too, could be celebrated just for what they were, too. And perhaps no greater exponent of that philosophy was the great poet and writer Oscar Wilde. Wilde savored the effects, whatever they actually were, of the mystical absinthe, famously claiming that after one glass, you see things as you wish they were. After the second, you see things as they are not. Finally, you see things as they really are, and that is the most horrible thing in the world. Well, what visions did absinthe really bring about? Wilde, again, told the story that after a night of particularly significant drinking at one of his favorite haunts, the Café Royale in London's Regent Street, that he felt the stems and the petals of tulips brushing against his legs as he passed through the café and back onto the street. As euphoric as absinthe could allegedly make one feel, it was also said that it could provoke acts of the most dangerous sort, including violent crime and even murder. The social case against absinthe led to its eventual prohibition not only in Europe, but also here in America in the early 20th century. Absinthe, at least according to some, became known as the most dangerous drink one could possibly imbibe. Today, however, absinthe seems to be getting a new look. No longer banned, absinthe appears on drink menus of some of the most trendy and sophisticated bars and restaurants. Perhaps it wasn't really all that bad after all. With me today to sort out just what is fact and what is fiction about this complex drink is absinthe expert Don Spiro, curator and host of New York's own Green Fairy Society, a monthly absinthe tasting salon here in Manhattan. Don worked in the media and television world of Los Angeles before relocating back to the East Coast and began promoting vintage-style cocktail-themed performance events. He is the editor of Zelda Magazine, a publication dedicated to jazz age arts and lifestyle, and there is no one better to join me for this discussion of the Green Fairy. Don, I so heartily welcome you to The Gilded Gentleman. Well, thank you, Carl, for having me. I, I really appreciate it. And I really appreciate that you have called me uh, an expert. I like to think that I, I know the experts and I can always ask them questions. But compared to, I guess, the average person, I, I am an expert. And hopefully, by the end of this podcast, all of your listeners will be experts, too. Well, I think you can certainly enlighten me and I think everyone else as well. So let's just start off with some of these myths and misconceptions here. It seems that there's really a lot of emotion that gets stirred up when people even mention the name absinthe. And certainly, it seems that there are some myths surrounding all of it. Can you share a little bit about what you're often asked Oh, absolutely. And there are a lot of myths about absinthe. It's one of the reasons why we do the Green Fairy. And I'm usually asked, uh, there's like four questions people always ask me. The first is, is it legal? And the answer is, yes, it is legal and possibly has always been legal. We can, we can get into that later. Uh, the next is, is there like real wormwood in it as if wormwood is something bad? And yes, wormwood is one of the botanicals that you have to have in absinthe. Uh, but the most, the funniest one I'd say is people always ask me, 
Can it make you hallucinate? And the answer is sadly for those people, no. There's nothing in absinthe that will make you hallucinate. And surprise, there never was anything in absinthe that will make you hallucinate. Oh, and as far as <laughs> people who do say they like absinthe, they always uh, talk about lighting it on fire as like as if that's something you should do. And we'll get that in, into that later. But no, please don't light absinthe on fire. My friend Cal Fire always says, friends don't let friends light absinthe on fire. But that's because they don't know what absinthe is. That just doesn't sound like a good idea anyway. But but when you say people don't know what absinthe is, that is the perfect place to start. So can you really explain to us what is it? Well, absinthe is an herbal spirit that's a, a liquor, not a liqueur that's got added sugar into it. A spirit you just make by having something that's fermented and running it through a still to concentrate the alcohol. And that's a spirit. And Distillers flavor it in different ways. You can uh, age it in oak barrels to give it other color and flavor. That's what happens with whiskey and tequila. Or you can infuse it with different botanicals, fruits, spices, other herbs, what have you, and then redistill it. And that's pretty much how they make gin and absinthe. If you have a spirit and you add juniper berries, you can add other things too and redistill it. You have gin. If you do it with what we call the Holy Trinity, now that's Grand Wormwood green anise, and sweet fennel, you can have other botanicals as well, but those three are the holy trinity, and you redistill it, that is absinthe. And what is it that gives it the green color? The green color is why they call it the green fairy. And a little bit of trivia, people don't know, when a spirit comes off the still, it's clear. All, all spirits are whiskey, gin, tequila, everything, including absinthe. And if you bottle it off the still, pretty much, it's called the Swiss style, the clear or blanche or blue style, and it's absinthe. It's your traditional absinthe. Now, the green style, the French style, what they call the vert, is you take that same absinthe and add even more botanicals for a second infusion, and you can add pretty much anything you want. It gives it that green color. By the way, it's not always green. Absinthe, if it's uh, aged a bit or light gets to it, it can turn a golden coppery color that they call dead leaf or le fouille mort, which is not as exciting to call something dead leaf as it is green fairy. But the green fairy, well, that's supposed to be the inspiration, they say, that is in absinthe. I found something, uh, a British book from the 1890s that called it the green-eyed fairy. And Alistair Crawley had called it the Green Goddess. So it, I think the, the nickname for it as a Green Fairy is just, like the French would say, Petite Mort. It's just a, a slang for it. it. It doesn't necessarily mean there's, you know, people actually saw fairies. But it's certainly a very poetic image. And if this, this drink is supposed to inspire creativity, not a bad name for it. The other thing, uh, when I was reading about this, that I think is important to make is it actually has a very high proof. It's actually very strong, correct? It is very strong. Uh, one of the <laughs> things about absinthe is it was originally, like, like a lot of spirits, created as a medicine. And you would dilute it. You would add it to things. That's why it was still a very high proof, unlike gin or whiskey or other spirits that they dilute before they put it in the bottle. You get to dilute absinthe yourself. It's an interactive spirit. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in detail coming up, I think. Now, these preparations with wormwood, that's an ingredient that we really don't hear about very much. But it seems that there were actually drinks that used wormwood going back 
many hundreds, if not thousands of years. Is that true? Yes, absolutely. The ancient Greeks used wormwood as their medicine. It was uh, a digestive aid. It was for stomach ailments. And there's all kinds of wormwood. The one that is in absinthe, uh, Artemisia absinthium, is where absinthe gets its name. It's called grand wormwood. But all through Europe, people would add wormwood to wine or fortified wines and, and later spirits to preserve them, make them, make them last longer. And it was their medicine. It was before antibiotics. This is what people were using as medicine. By the way, a little trivia. If people were adding uh, eau de vie to wine to make it last longer, it's called fortified wine. And if it had wormwood in it, it was called wormwood or vermut, which comes down to us as vermouth. So, so it's a long history. You know, it's interesting. The wormwood is, the, you know, we hear it today and wonder, now, what is that? But it sounds like in the 19th century, that was a pretty commonly known ingredient in a number of things, right? Wormwood is an alpine shrub. It's very common. It was very common as a, a stomach ailment right up until Prohibition era, I would say. So with a drink that started as really a medical treatment, how did we get from there to these heady, vibrant cafes and the green drink and the crystal glass? How did we get there? Well, that's one of the things we talk about at our parties is the whole history of why wormwood and these other botanicals now end up being considered part of like the fin de siècle, the, you know, the artist and everybody drinking it and having all these great, uh, you know, it's their muse. It started back in the 1700s. The legend has it that in 1792, there was a doctor, Dr. Pierre Ordinaire, living in Switzerland, in the Val de Traverse region in Cuvée. And he was a French doctor, but he, like everybody back then, was using wormwood in his recipes. And he came up with this one that has what we call the holy trinity of grand wormwood, sweet fennel, and green anise, and other botanicals with a brandy-based spirit. And he created this medicine. He sold it to the Henriot sisters, who in turn sold it to Major Daniel Henri Dubied. And what we do know is that in 1798, Major Dubied opened the first absinthe distillery in Switzerland. It was Dubied Père Ephiel, father and son. And is with his son, Marcelin, and his son-in-law, Henri-Louis Perrineau, who eventually took over the company. And business was doing so well, especially in France, uh, right across the border. But there were huge import taxes on things from Switzerland. So Perrineau simplified his name to Pernod and built a distillery right across the border in Pontellier and left his son, Edouard, in charge of the old distillery. And business started to take off as, with this Medicinal extract. What happened was, in the 1830s, French soldiers who were in North Africa, Algiers and Morocco, were given absinthe as a preventative for malaria, very much the way the British were adding quinine, making tonic water. This was the, the French version of that. So they were adding absinthe extract to their water. And like they say, a spoonful of sugar helps the medicine go down. They were adding sugar to it. And they developed a taste for absinthe-flavored sweetened water. And when they went back to France, they would go to cafes, and that's what they would ask for. So it became very popular to the point where they could just ask for un pernod, and they would get this. It was so popular that other brands started coming out with absinthe, although you could ask for un pernod, and you'd get whatever brand they, they happened to have. 
So it sounds like it was certainly getting very popular in Paris at the end of the 19th century. And, and we've talked a little bit about England. Did it come over here to America? What about in the Gilded Age? Could you get an absinthe here too? Oh, absolutely. Absinthe was being exported and there was some absinthe being made in the U.S. But in the North, uh, especially amongst the, the elite classes, they were emulating England. And the thing about England at the time, with the exception of the, the artists and writers and musicians, the English generally disliked the French. There was a lady named Marie Corelli. She was probably the most popular writer in England at the time. She's unheard of today. People don't know about her, but she was more popular than Conan Doyle and Kipling. And she wrote a book called Wormwood. And it was basically anti-French. This was in 1890. It was against all the everything French, the art, the morals, um, especially drinking absinthe. So yeah, in America, absinthe was not quite as popular there, except in New Orleans. New Orleans had been a French territory and had a large French-speaking population. So of course, they were drinking absinthe down there. That's where the Sazerac was invented, in fact. Well, I remember years ago when I first went to New Orleans wandering around and I found the old Absinthe House, which is still there. And I think that's an old bar from the early 19th century. Am I correct about that, serving Absinthe? Yes, it's from the early 19th century. Uh, the Absinthe House was built in 1815 at the corner of Bourbon and Bienville Streets. And in 1874, it was called the Absinthe Room. Now it's called the old Absinthe House. And during Prohibition, they took out all the old fountains and put them in storage. So the place survived Prohibition, and if you go there today, it's mostly locals drinking beer and whiskey and some tourists who are curious about it. But a few years ago, uh, and, and I went to the opening of this, they took their storage room and converted it into a wonderful Gilded Age bar called Belle Epoque. And they restored it with all the original absinthe fountains. And it is a lovely spot to drink absinthe. Oh, that's really interesting. Sounds like an event should happen there, right? So let's go back to the Belle Epoque. So this is the world of cafe society when there's music and certainly champagne, the other drink bubbling all over the place. But it's pretty much a wash in absinthe. Now, was it all of the same quality? Was there such a thing as bad absinthe or bathtub absinthe? At the time, absinthe was so popular and there were so many really good brands with absinthe that uh, the quality was pretty high. I'm sure that there were some people making bathtub absinthe and homemade absinthe. That's more really of a, of a late 20th century thing, though. At the time, there were so many good brands that people had their choice. Like modern spirits, uh, it was of you know varying quality and varying taste. But it was available to everyone. People could get some really nice absinthe of quite a variety back then. It also seems that it was the drink, as I said in the introduction, most associated with all these bohemian artists and writers. And the image is that they drank absinthe and it led them to these great, great creative inspirations. But I think that we should probably dig into this a little bit. First of all, as you said, absinthe had a very high alcohol content, so that could have certainly contributed to it. They were probably drinking other alcoholic drinks as well. And I even re read somewhere that opium-laced cigarettes were a thing. So it seems to me, am I right, Don, that it's a combination of a number of these things that led to some of this probably not great behavior and 
the beginning of some of these myths against absinthe. Absolutely. At the time, everything was unregulated, so you never knew really what you were getting sometimes. And of course, back then you did have heroin and opium and ether and laudanum. And if you would drink absinthe straight or have it with other cocktails, I guess you'd say, or other spirits, you, you could get drunk. But it never really gave you uh, what people think of as you know an, an absinthe high because it was so popular. It was almost at the point where it was like coffee in the United States. Everybody was drinking it. Yes, the artists were drinking it, so were the plumbers. And the writers and musicians were drinking it, and so were the carriage drivers. And if it gave everybody this incredible inspiration, then everybody in France in the 1800s would have been a genius, or they would have all been hallucinating. And that's just not the record. You know, part of it, though, is... Even at the time period, there was a lot of misinformation about it, and that all dates back to the idea that so many people were drinking absinthe because they couldn't get other spirits, you know, brandy or or wine, so they were drinking that. And I had read at one point that the French wine manufacturers got really upset about this this prevalence of of absinthe, and it was partly them that started this anti-absinthe campaign. Is there any truth to that? Absolutely. In fact, I think that is the main reason why we lost absinthe for so long. And there were, there were good reasons for them doing that, actually. A lot of people don't know it. In the mid-1800s, there was a little bug uh, called phylloxera. It's uh, a bug that came from America, and it eats grapevine roots. And people don't know that it devastated the vineyards all through Europe. Some people, uh, mileage may vary, but I hear between 70 to 90% of the vineyards of Europe were destroyed. And it took them decades to come back. So through the second half of the 19th century, there was virtually no wine, no brandy. And when you could get it, it was very hard to come by and very expensive. Now, absinthe producers, the absinthe distillers who had been using brandy, a grape-based spirit as their base, just switched to either grain-based spirits or sugar beets. France was really touting sugar beets as a replacement for sugar. So since people couldn't drink wine or brandy, they started drinking absinthe, made it extremely popular. And by 1900 or so, the 1890s, 1900, when the wine lobby uh, had gotten back. you know, They wanted their market share back. They had brandy and wine available for sale, and everybody was drinking absinthe, and they were not happy. So they started a major ad campaign to besmirch absinthe. This is so fascinating because when I was digging into the, the whole story of absinthe, what I found really the most interesting about this is this is a great marketing case study, actually, that should be in business school somewhere, right? I mean, because some of the the idea of perception is reality, how you create perception, all of those things are great marketing rules, of course, in any campaign today. One of the things that I started looking at were some of the advertising posters that were used at the time to advertise absinthe. And I would love to talk a little bit about those. There were some that advertised specifically to women. There were some that use celebrities. There were even some that showed just general farmers drinking absinthe, and it was all supposed to be wonderful. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I know you've done some 
work looking at the advertising of absinthe? Oh, absolutely. Uh, absinthe became hugely popular through advertising. Uh, it became popular, first of all, because the French soldiers coming and then because of the epidemic. But the third spoke of this this tripod, I guess you would say, of why absinthe was popular was really advertising. This is the same time period that there were incredible technological advances in lithography and mass production. So you had these amazing colorful posters and ads and artists who became famous, like Toulouse-Lautrec, painting them. The most popular, I'd say, that everybody knows is the absinthe robette one. It's of a lady holding an absinthe glass, and that's from 1896. It was by Henri Prévalt-Livemont, who was one of the most famous poster artists at the time. I have a poster here, which... I will describe as a French soldier having a nice absinthe, and next to him is a couple, and you can see it's in the afternoon. It's not just for men. It's one of the spirits where ladies were, were drinking it too. One of the things when I was looking at some of this advertising is that it was directed at women. There are these beautiful images of women with these gorgeous clothes and their head thrown back and they're slinging an absinthe bottle around. And, and here you have this beautiful couple here. Wasn't that interesting <laughs> that a liquor, well, was was marketed to women? Uh, I think so, absolutely. And it wasn't just that the advertising had beautiful women selling these, you know, holding the bottles like you would have in in as today. It was also that the women in the posters were pouring the absinthe for themselves. Sometimes they were alone and drinking absinthe. So yes, it was definitely marketed to men and women equally surprisingly. <laughs> then it was hard for them to give it up, right? According certainly to the wine, the wine folks. Yes. It, it was very difficult once everybody was, it would be like asking Americans to give up their Starbucks or whatever, you know, local coffee shop they had. People were so into drinking it that five o'clock in the afternoon was called, it was called the green hour. It was, it was like we have happy hour today. Uh, it was just so popular that everybody was drinking absence, men, women. There's a, a poster here that I think is rather humorous for absence birth alone, which uh, my friend Nico Lowry, I don't know if you know him, he's from Swan Galleries. He, he showed me this poster, which I'll describe it as a man drinking absinthe. And it's got a joke in it. He's turning his head to look at a pretty lady walking by. And there's a young boy in the foreground stealing his absinthe. So, and there's a bunch of men in the background laughing at this. So you can see everybody was drinking absinthe. And of course, this poster shows people drinking absinthe at an outdoor cafe in the afternoon, broad daylight. So it's time for a little break. When we come back, let's dig a little bit deeper into why it was banned and how all that came about. And we're back. I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. And today I'm with Don Spiro, and we are talking about the myths and misconceptions of one of the most famous drinks of all time, absinthe. 
So, Don, I want to go back to this this notion that that absinthe really got a pretty bad reputation. And before the break, we started to talk a little bit about that. Uh, and it seems like one of the culprits was actually this ingredient that you mentioned at the top of the show, wormwood. So there was some notion that if you imbibed wormwood, that was going to make you hallucinate or crazy or whatever. Is there anything in wormwood that really was can produce that? The short answer is no. No, there, there's nothing in wormwood that really can do that. Wormwood got a really bad rap. But basically, it's added because it tastes bitter, you know. And if you like things bitter, wormwood can really, really be uh, a nice thing to have in it. But there's nothing hallucinogenic in it. There never was anything hallucinogenic in it. People will talk about uh, a chemical that is in wormwood called thujone. What thujone is is well, not a hallucinogenic. It is, in a very large dose, a convulsant. It will give you uh, muscle contractions or muscle spasms, but it does not affect your mind that way as far as hallucinations go. And there's just as much thujone in sage as there is in wormwood. For beverages and food to be legally sold, it has to be thujone-free. And in the European Union, that means that it has to have less than 35 parts per million and in the U.S., it's less than 10 parts per million. Uh, and then something is thujone-free. So it's almost undetectable. You're never going to have any of the effects from thujone in absinthe. There's way too much alcohol. You're going to feel that first. And even if you would feel the, the thujone, you're not going to have hallucinations. So sorry, there's nothing hallucinogenic about wormwood. There's nothing bad about wormwood. And if you like some things that taste bitter, wormwood's a good way to go. Now, I read one of these stories that started this this bad reputation for absinthe. Apparently in Switzerland, about 1905, there was a famous case known as the absinthe murders, where this man started drinking and then committed some horrible crimes. Can you share that story and what the effect of that actually was? Oh, yes, that was known as the absinthe murders. And that was the culmination of a long line of an anti-absinthe campaign from the wine lobby, uh, which started, I guess, back in the 1870s. There was a French psychiatrist, a well-respected psychiatrist named Albert Mignon, and he came up with this fake disease called absinthism that he studied. And he was not a chemist, but he did all these chemical pseudoscientific tests showing that absinthe was bad. And that was like the first fake news that they started using. And they teamed up with the temperance movement, which was trying to get uh, all hard spirits banned, not necessarily wines and, and beer, but hard spirits. So they definitely wanted that banned. So there was this big groundswell already to get absinthe banned. And then in 1905, there was a guy named Jean Lefray. He was a French alcoholic who was living in Switzerland, and he came home one day and murdered his whole family, and then he tried to kill himself, and he had had two glasses of absinthe. He also had coffee with brandy, two creme de menthe, seven glasses of wine, and six glasses of cognac, and the press called it the absinthe murders. So... <laughs> This was one of those situations where it, it just lit the powder keg. 
people started having campaigns and petitions to get absinthe banned and made it illegal. That was really the, the, the thing that kicked that all off. It's just fascinating because people start to believe what they're told without really digging more deeply into it. I mean, that is an awful lot of alcohol for anybody to, to, to take. And, and this led to some bans. Can you talk about when absinthe really started to be banned, both in Europe as well as the United States? Well, the absinthe murder happened in 1905. And pretty much right after that, Belgium banned it in 1906. Switzerland voted to ban it in 1908 and fully banned it in 1910. The U.S. banned it in 1912 and then later had full prohibition in 1920. France banned it in 1915. I know Pernod, the distillery, went out of business in 17. And this all coincided with the Great War. You know, that started in 1914. So it wasn't just absinthe. People couldn't get anything. Distribution lines were down. Export imports were all down. There was just no way really, you know, absinthe was the last thing on people's mind. Not that they even had time to hang out at a cafe during the day uh, drinking absinthe when there's a war going on. So that pretty much was the final nail in the coffin for absinthe. But then it came back. So... Now it's, it's, you find it in a number of places, as I mentioned, bars and restaurants. When were the bans lifted and when did absinthe drinking start again? Well, that happened in the early 2000s and there were a few coincidences that came together to make that happen. Uh, one was that it was never really illegal in the United Kingdom or Spain. They were make, still making absinthe in Spain. They just couldn't uh, export it. So when the European Union was founded in 2008, they wanted to have more uniform laws. At the same time, there was a chemist in New Orleans called Ted Bro, and he got a hold of a bunch of pre-banned bottles of absinthe and started analyzing them for their Thuja content. And also, also to, I guess, retro, you know, make pre-banned absinthe, which he did. Uh, but he found that the Thuja content was never above what we consider the legal limit. So maybe technically they were never illegal. So people started campaigning to take the laws, you know, and, and the bans down. And eventually, absinthe was made uh, legal to produce and then legal to export and import. And we have some great absence coming in from Europe. Fortunately, the United States started having laws that craft distillers in the U.S. legally could produce spirits, including absinthe. So we have some great absence coming out of the United States right now, too. So just to debunk this myth once and for all, so absinthe drinking is safe. It's not going to make you hallucinate or anything will happen to you, right? Uh, I'm going to say absolutely on, on that uh, with, with a caveat. One of the reasons why people wanted to make absinthe legal again is because of the mystique, because of... Uh, all the misinformation. They wanted to try it for themselves to see if they would hallucinate. And there were a lot of people going to Eastern Europe, specifically Czechoslovakia and Prague, where they had a fake absinthe in, in the 1980s, mostly for tourists. It was basically a artificially green-colored high-proof vodka that tasted so bad that they started lighting it on fire as a gimmick to to make more sales. And 
that's where the whole idea of lighting absinthe on fire came from. It doesn't go back to the 1880s. It goes back to the 1980s. Unfortunately, it was picked up by the media, film, and television who thought that was the correct way to prepare absinthe. So that's why you will see it in things like Moulin Rouge or From Hell. But it was never done in, in during the Gilded Age or Victorian times. But people wanted to try it and there was a demand for it. So that's why we can have really good absinthe. There is still some of that fake absinthe left. And I would say don't, if it looks artificially green or advertises like bigger Thujone content, which by the way, they can only go up to the, the legal limit uh, and it's not going to affect you anyway, not going to make you hallucinate. Now, before we get back to Carl and Don, I wanted to present a cocktail recipe that Don provided us special for this show. It's a cross between a traditional absinthe cocktail and a champagne cocktail, and also a drink called Death in the Afternoon. This is a newly named drink called the Gilded Gentleman, and very easy to make. All you need is a stemmed glass, a sugar cube, some absinthe, some ice-cold champagne, or sparkling wine, and a little lemon. First, you drop the sugar cube into the stemmed glass. Dawn recommends using a bar spoon to do this if you're making it for your holiday guests. Now pour in just enough absinthe to soak the sugar cube. Then just top it all with champagne as much as you like, as much as the glass will hold. Then you add a thin little lemon twist. Now do not pour the champagne too fast because the champagne will foam and overflow when it hits the sugar cube. If you are doing this in front of guests and don't want to make a mess, practice this a couple times. Now our guest today recommends a dry brute, but any sparkling wine will do in a pinch. Believe it or not, this drink resembles a classic champagne absinthe cocktail called Death in the Afternoon, supposedly created by Ernest Hemingway, and of course named for his 1932 novel. And you can put your own twist on this recipe because, of course, there are many flavors and varieties of champagne and many flavors and varieties of absinthe. But make sure to put that lemon twist on top as a kind of reminder of the Gilded Gentleman's bow tie. And now, back to the show. Now, one of the things I always thought fascinating about absinthe when you read the 19th century writers that rhapsodize on and on about this is the ritual of drinking absinthe, because this was not just pouring absinthe into a glass and, you know, cheers. So can you talk a little bit about what the ritual of drinking absinthe was or is, and I know you've brought along a couple of really interesting pieces of glassware, which you'll talk about to uh, to let us know what's the proper way to drink it. So absinthe does have a ritual, and it dates back to the French soldiers adding absinthe to their water. That's how you drink it. You think of absinthe as a concentrate. I wouldn't drink it straight. It's too high a proof. And the way they would drink it is they would go to a cafe and given an absinthe glass. An absinthe glass is just like any other glass, except usually they'll have some markings at the bottom, and that's to show you how high to fill your 
glass with absinthe, and then the rest is filled with water. So the glass that you just picked up, it's a sort of tall, sort of narrow, narrow glass with, with the markings towards the bottom. Yes, there's all kinds of shapes. It's basically like a, a, a tall wine glass that has some kind of demarcation as to where you would put the absinthe. And then they would have a fountain that would slowly drip ice cold water on it. It would be either this or you'd sit down at a cafe and they give you a poppette, which is a small glass carafe with several different markings on it and that would be filled with absinthe and they would give you actually a carafe of water and you would have as much water or as much absinthe in your glass as you would like. And when you were finished, the server would come by and charge you for however many uh, servings were gone from the carafe, from the, uh, from the poppette. And those could be very beautifully etched with crystal, correct? I've, I've seen some images where your absinthe glass and the, the little cruet were beautiful pieces of glassware. Yes. Uh, absinthe wasn't just uh, the glassware, too. There was all kinds of branding. There were uh, match strikers, which they would put on the table with the different brands' labels on them. Uh, the brands came out with different glassware spoons, which I'll talk about right now. One of the things you would do, I'll, I'll just quick do a demonstration. I'm filling up the, some glass. So Don is pouring some green liquid into this tall glass. This is Jade 1901. It's one of my favorites. It's uh, one of the recreations that Ted Bro did with Cambier Distillery. So you would put the absinthe in the glass, and then you would take a spoon, which has uh, a lot of different little slots in it. It's not an ordinary style spoon. It's made to sit right on top of the glass. That's about the size of a little smaller than a tablespoon. Is that about right? With some really beautiful design in it with the slots that you mentioned. Nice, beautiful piece of silver. Yes, and they would be all kinds of shapes and sizes too. And sometimes they would have the, the brand name on them. And the reason for this is because at the time, people liked things very sweet. I... Don't, so I didn't bring a sugar cube, but traditionally what you would do is you would put a sugar cube on the spoon, uh, a little bit of trivia. I used to work in a champagne bar and the vendors would tell us that in the 1800s, the French really did have a sweet tooth and one of the most popular styles of champagne was dues, which is hard to find today. And it would have up to four times as much sugar added to it, the dosage, as uh, a modern brute, which is, is really sweet. So they like things sweet. They would put the sugar cube on the spoon. They would take some ice cold water and add it to the absinthe. And this is the part where people would start to talk about the green fairy, because it's such a high proof that there's a lot of flavors and a lot of aromas that are dissolved in the alcohol. Now, when you have a whiskey or a tequila or gin or something like that, they dilute it, usually down to about 40% alcohol, that's 80 proof. And the reason isn't just to, to save money, it's to get all those flavors and those aromas out of the alcohol so that you have the taste that the distiller intended you to have. Like I said, absinthe is interactive, you get to do it. In absinthe and in ouzo, for example, there is a chemical compound called anethol. It comes from the anise and the fennel. It's dissolved invisibly in the absinthe. And when you dilute it, the anethol comes out of the absinthe, comes out of the alcohol, and you can hear me pouring it, and it turns the absinthe into an opaque kind of milky Oh, it's all cloudy. Look. Yeah, it's all cloudy. Yeah. And if I would do it slowly with uh, a dripping fountain, you would see it kind of start to swirl and everything. I did it fast just for a time. So 
you can see the anothol coming out. So do all the other aromas and flavors. The same thing, same exact thing happens when you're drinking whiskey and you add an ice cube to it. The only difference is that with absinthe, you can get to see it. One of the great things about absinthe, though, is because you dilute it like this, it, like I said, it has a very high proof. But when you dilute it to one part absinthe to three, four, or five parts ice cold water, it becomes the same proof as a glass of wine or sherry. It becomes very low proof. And that's why people could drink it all day. Again, debunking the myth that that it was always so terribly strong, you certainly could dilute it down. Now, mm-hmm. you'd mentioned a few minutes ago that the champagne in the 19th century, particularly in, in the Belle Epoque, was, was so much sweeter generally than it is, is today. Does the absinthe that we taste today, does that taste the same as it would have in the late 19th century? In some ways, the absinthe today tastes exactly the same. I like to think of absinthe today as having two styles, both which are are period correct. Uh, one is you can have absinthe from, for example, the jade line of absinthe that Combier makes, where they find pre-banned bottles of absinthe, analyze what was in them, and recreate them. So you are tasting almost exactly what they had back in the 1800s. The other kind of absinthe is where people are using local botanicals. And this is what they did in in France and Switzerland. They they used their local botanicals and added them for color and flavor, you know, in addition, of course, to the Holy Trinity. So you will have absinthe, for example, made in San Francisco, where they're using local California botanicals for their flavoring. Uh, And you will get all these new flavors of absinthe that they didn't have back then. But I would say it is in the tradition of absinthe making that they were using the Holy Trinity with whatever they had around, locally sourced, and coming up with some amazing flavors today. And that's really a trend in cocktail culture, isn't it? Is is using sort sort of modern and local uh, ingredients to to follow the same process, but to develop a new taste. Yes, I believe that actually came from cuisine, from farm to table, that people were doing that. Uh, and I know that there were actually some laws that are guiding this. I know, for example, in New York, there are some bars and distilleries that in order for them to have their license, there's different levels of licensing that they have to use New York State bases. Now, Don, you created a whole new kind of Belle Epoque experience here in in New York at, with the Green Fairy Society. Can you talk a little bit about why you chose to uh, establish that and what you were trying to do and what it's like? You're, you're known for your vintage recreations, uh, and this is one of them. Well, thank you. I had been doing Club Wits End, which was a jazz age themed party for years back in uh, 2009, and it ran for seven years. We stopped it mainly because other people started doing jazz age parties, and I could just go to them and not have to do all the work. So I was at the Red Room one time, and they asked me to do a jazz age party, and I thought about it. It's like, well, I can go to all these other places, but what would I like to do? And I'd been going to a lot of whiskey tastings and gin tastings. And I thought, well, other people are doing those too, but something along those veins would be nice. And I like absinthe. I like every spirit. But absinthe is one that I thought more people should know about. And I want it to be the way people consider rye today. Ten years ago, if you go into a bar and you ask for rye, they would say, we don't don't have rye. And now you can go into any dive bar and say, 
I'd like a rye. And they'll say, oh, what kind of rye would you like? I'm hoping absinthe gets to be that way. I would like to go into a bar and ask for a Sazerac and have them ask me what kind of absinthe I'd want. So I pitched this idea to the Red Room. How about we do like a Gilded Age, Fantasy Clay, all the way up to like, you know, 20s or so themed absinthe tasting with a different brand every month. And they were sold on the idea. So we've been doing that six years. Every first Thursday of the month, people dress up. We have a dress code. We have different performances. It's a cabaret variety show. Sometimes just belly dance or opera or sideshow or what have you. Always live jazz and different brand of absinthe that people can get to taste. So, Don, do you have any particular thoughts for new absinthe drinkers, people that are interested in tasting that? What advice would you give them? Well, I would say that if people want to try absinthe, and they're in the New York area, the best way to try it is to come to our club because we have a different brand every month and they don't have to buy a full bottle. But if you can't make it to one of our events and you want to try real absinthe, try to find a bar that's local to you that might have a good absinthe. And if they give it to you as a shot, make sure you ask for some ice water so you can dilute it yourself. Otherwise, the best way is to go online. Uh, there are some great absinthe brands that do distribution. And you can go online to a great resource. It's wormwoodsociety.org that has absinthe reviews of just about every absinthe brand there is. And you can pick and choose what you like to try. But again, if, if you come to New York... Come to the Green Ferry. We have a, a different brand every month. One of the things that I always like to say in, in being a historical storyteller is that one of the best ways to experience the past is to see it or to see what's left of it with our modern eyes. Well, it sounds like in this case, the way to taste the Belle Epoque or perhaps the Gilded Age may be to have a glass of absinthe. Do you agree with that? I would absolutely agree with that. If you want to know what it was like being in France or Switzerland in the Belle Epoque, you need to sit at a cafe in the sun and have a glass of absinthe. It's, it's really nice and refreshing. Don, thank you so much. I think that we have cleared up some of those myths and misconceptions and talked a little bit about how and why they started. So thank you so much for joining me today for a little bit of a dance with the Green Fairy. This has been absolutely my pleasure, and thank you so much for having me. Oh, you're welcome, Don. And thank you to my listeners for joining me for another episode of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast. The Gilded Gentleman is produced by Bowery Boys Media. And I invite you to join the show as a patron on patreon.com. Visit patreon.com slash the Gilded Gentleman to become a patron and have access to bonus content, special invitations, and early announcements of all my Gilded goings on. Your support truly helps me to be able to continue to do the show. And I'll see you soon. After all, what's life without a little glint of gold? <laughs>